0: Welcome to the British Home Front in the First World War. This series was recorded at the University of St Andrews in June 2018 to accompany a conference marking the contribution by the peoples of the British Isles to the national war effort. In this set of podcasts, we have looked at iron and steel, agriculture, forestry, and fisheries. We hear now from Professor Roy MacLeod about the role of scientists.
1: My name is Roy McLeod. I'm a historian of science and medicine and technology. I'm particularly interested in the ways in which science and statecraft in times of war come together. The natural scientists in Britain, certainly, are overtaken or surprised by the coming of war. Many of Britain's natural scientists, particularly in the physical and chemical sciences, were educated in Germany. Close German friends have met German colleagues as recently as 1913. There are wonderful class photos, so to speak, of them sitting next to each other. The relationships between English and German science were on the whole quite close. People were reading the same journals, more or less, and going to the same conferences. Now, it was probably the case, too, that many British scientists would have thought in July 1914 that if there were to be a European war, that it would be over quickly, and that it would be European, and it wouldn't involve Britain, and that if it were over quickly and didn't involve Britain, it probably wouldn't involve British science. However, the moment war was declared, the Royal Society of London began to think seriously about what this might mean, and the mobilization of the scientific community, the identification of people around the country who had scientific backgrounds that might be of some utility in the event of war, all of a sudden came to the fore. The Royal Society eventually, by 1916, managed to produce a conjoint committee which linked all the learned societies of Britain in this act of mobilization. This, as many other such developments turns out to be a forerunner of what happened in the Second World War. That's to say the identification of a scientific community for the purposes of scientific manpower and the identification of people by skill, such skills as could be relayed to industrial or government or military purposes. Mobilization was slow and in many ways reluctant. Many companies didn't necessarily wish to see themselves involved in this exercise. Many young men almost immediately, scientists as others, volunteered for the fighting forces, undergraduates reading science as much as undergraduates reading other subjects, and many were lost. It was probably not until about October of 1914 that a series of developments occurred that, in my view, really precipitated the British scientific community into a warlike state, and that was associated with the publication of the so-called Manifesto of the 93 German professors, which included about 25 German scientists of great distinction, including Nobel Prize winners, who identified themselves with the purposes of the fatherland, and the political purposes of the German state. This development, which more or less coincided with the alleged atrocities in Belgium and the burning of the Library of Levan, managed to swing opinion among the scientists, even those with German friends, German educations behind them, into a response. This was a moral response. This was a moral duty to some extent. It was, of course, relayed into a patriotic duty as well. The events of October 1914 had repercussions across the world, certainly in France as well, but notably also in the United States with its large proportion of German academics, scientists, especially in the chemical industry who would have been sympathetic to a German position pre-war, but all of a sudden were catapulted into having to take up a point of view. And this point of view, by early 1916, was pro-Allied. So the... Mobilization of the British scientific community, which included, of course, the empire, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, was to be followed in amazingly short time by the Americans as well. Of course, this didn't manifest itself very far until America actually entered the war in 1917. The moment individual scientists become involved, so do agencies. The National Physical Laboratory, the Botanic Gardens... A range of agencies that would normally be doing peacetime work were beginning to be thinking of military-related applications, many of them involving scientific principles or the application of scientific principles that had not yet been fully tested. And there were new fields, or relatively new fields, weather forecasting among them, which would obviously have uh, military bearing and had been used in military ways in the past, but all of a sudden were now systematized and produced. And that and, of course, the whole telecommunications, the beginnings of radio, the applications of wireless, were given military bearing. The events in Britain were very much shaped by events elsewhere, Consciousness of what the Germans were doing, consciousness also what the French were doing in response. The ways in which the French scientific community responded were very much ones that the British scientific community took seriously. Almost immediately were degrees of cooperation devised that in the previous decade would have been exceptional. Because, of course, there had been so much pro-German sympathy and less pro-French sympathy in the years immediately before the war. The leadership of British science tended to be invested in the fellowship of the Royal Society and leading people at the major laboratories, particularly the Cavendish in Cambridge, to some extent UCL, University College London, and the Clarendon at Oxford You would also be looking in chemistry at some of the provincial universities who would have people, many of whom were relatively new to the world of science. Between 1900 and 1914, the scientific population of Britain doubled. And this is partly a result of the increase in provincial university places offered in the sciences through the 1890s. So in quantitative terms, there was a measurable community. This community, however, was not particularly united in any way. People came together for annual meetings of the British Association for the Advancement of Science, and there were the professional societies in chemistry, physics, and so forth. But a unifying concept of the scientific community as such, and what purposes it would serve to be united, was not at all clear. Germany is by far the leading scientific country in Europe in most fields in 1914 in terms of the number of people involved and probably the numbers of students. But you have to look at strengths and weaknesses across the board. Germany was, from the mid-19th century, very strong in organic chemistry. Britain remained very strong in inorganic chemistry. The agricultural sciences were much more advanced in Germany in chemical terms, but much more advanced in environmental terms in Britain. So, it's difficult to categorize across the board. Our friends in the Royal Society see the need to act in a unified way in bringing together the different learned societies, and also to represent themselves as a voice for science. Not all the instruments that it develops are all that useful right away and not until the beginning of 1915 does one begin to see a real payoff. Then, of course, what is relevant is the political environment, the shell crisis, which precipitates a great deal more interest in the actual production of shells and what goes into them, and the nature of the raw materials that you need and where these raw materials are to be found, and the efficiencies to be used in producing them. By February 1915, there was a pretty clear idea that industry was not as scientific as it should be, as Germany's was, and therefore this required not just private (laughs) encouragement, but public support. So, movements were launched that led ultimately to the establishment of a Privy Council Committee on Science and Industrial Research, which later became the Department of Scientific Industrial Research, the DSIR. Also in 1915, the applications of science based knowledge to military technologies, prompted by the submarine war, brought the Admiralty into the picture, creating bodies like the Board of Invention Research contracting with Rutherford and the elder Bragg to advise on anti-submarine detection apparatus. Ernest Rutherford, Lord Rutherford, Nobel Prize-winning physicist, probably one of Britain's most outstanding physicists of the early 20th century, is particularly well-known for his work in atomic physics. He's a New Zealander, but he makes his way as an imperial figure The Braggs, William Bragg and his son, later Sir Lawrence Bragg, are claimed by Adelaide, where the younger Bragg was born. The elder Bragg was on the staff of the University of Adelaide. Also important physicists, particularly in the field of diffraction studies, and their contribution in instrumentation was vital to the Admiralty. In the case of the elder Bragg, in anti-submarine work, in the case of the younger Bragg, on the Western Front in artillery, spotting an anti-artillery location. Both of them actually helped develop new technologies that were war-winning. War work represented an interruption <laughs> in the course of their studies. The whole world of physics was leaping ahead. It was within reach of important developments in nuclear physics. Einstein's papers 1905... What the physicists of the war were doing was, in some sense, more traditional, ironically. By the middle of 1916, the practical utility of science was clear enough to the public as well. The Cambridge Review is saying at one point that science is on everyone's lips. This is partly explained by the fact that chemical warfare had been introduced in April of 1915. It was first used on the Western Front by Germans. But there were probably precursors to that event, which we're now looking at. The response was quick, first in France, as often, and then in Britain. So it wasn't long before the British scientists were producing counter gases, particularly to chlorine and phosgene, Chlorine gas, which is an industrial gas, easily available, first used by the Germans in April 1915, that was easily spotted, and the development of gas masks followed quickly. The Germans then, the following year, introduced phosgene, which is also an industrial gas, which required a different kind of mask. The Allies began to use similar gases as well. The Germans, thirdly, developed mustard gas, which is a bisulfide gas. The chemistry of it is fairly straightforward, but the engineering of it is quite difficult. And it took a great deal of enterprise on the part of the British and then the Americans to develop a counter-response to mustard. In the meantime, German scientists, and certainly through 1917 and early 1918, were beginning to work on nerve gases, which were worked on as early as the 1890s, as part of agricultural science, the production of pesticides. Sarin and tabungas were the unhappy outcome of that research, which was on the point of being deployed near the end of the war. sarin has become a feature of our own time. The Americans became quickly adept at their development of chemical warfare, and a close relationship between Porton Down, our chemical weapons center, and Camp American University in Washington, D.C., ensued. The activity produced a number of different kinds of gases— some of which have developed chemical models that are useful to science as a whole. All these were lessons which were coming out of the experience of the war, in this case in chemistry. There were many other lessons in many other fields, particularly in, in the fields of aviation, where new materials were brought into play, new raw materials had to be found around the world, new fabrics. Engine design using well known principles, but often using new materials that made them airworthy and efficient. New fields of aerodynamics, new disciplines emerge in some cases, particularly in factories having to do with explosives manufacture. The discipline of chemical engineering comes more or less into existence because of the need to combine the skills of chemists and engineers in the building of sites. For the production of weapons shells which involved both the engineering and the chemistry so the war becomes an incubator for new technologies and for new instrumentalities of scientific work there are certainly opportunities to compare and contrast the experience of others around the world who have a similar ambition From the point of view of Australian scientists and Canadian scientists, this was an opportunity to come to London (laughs) and to see what other people were doing. For the Americans, it was also an opportunity to learn rapidly what the Allies were doing. The Americans established scientific liaison offices in London, Paris, and Rome, the first science attaches in the world. Very few scientists in Britain were concerned with the ethics of the matter, as we would construe this question now. It was patriotic duty. It was a question of defeating an aggressive enemy, especially after the Manifesto of the 93 in October of 1914. It was clear that in this case, the Germans had politicized their science, the whole ethos of science, in the previous decades had been to internationalize science. The pursuit of natural knowledge in physics, chemistry, and biology. This was an international activity which the Nobel Prize was meant to reward. A few of the German scientists were interned in Australia in 1914. The British Association, for the first time in its history, held a meeting in Australia, timed for August 1914. It happened to coincide with the outbreak of the war. And some Germans who happened to be there as international scientists were interned. All were eventually released and returned home. But one or two were quite outspoken as to what they considered to be the importance of their work for Germany once they got back. There had been, of course, scientists who had served their countries in different ways on different sides in the past but never in quite this organized fashion. There were very few academics, in fact, in Britain who were on paper as opposing the war. Bertrand Russell, famously, of Trinity Cambridge, who lost his job because of his views. He opposed the war. He was not a pacifist, but he opposed this war. J.B.S. Haldane, the physiologist of UCL, who was a very peace-loving man, but who, in the years immediately after the war, wrote a book in defense of poison gas. His argument was that among the ways of killing, poison gas was least damaging. He himself devoted his war work to the production of gas masks. Now, as scientists come out of the war in 1918, again, there are those who begin to see the war as having been good for science. It certainly created new jobs. It created prestige. Among the scientific workers as a category, National Union of Scientific Workers and the Association of Scientific Workers, it created a new cadre of professionals, many of whom were in the public service. Also, by 1916, a movement launched by Lord Rayleigh, among others, to oppose the national neglect of science, in inverted commas, was eventually followed by the setting up of the Thomson Committee and the inclusion of science in the Fisher Education Act of 1918 which brought science into the school lives of a new generation. There was the development of the Department of Scientific and Industrial Research. We also have the so-called Haldane report, whereby the scientific community was said to function best when it governed itself. The Research Council, which was party to the Haldane principle, this was again a product of the war. Many of the innovations had come about not because the scientists had been asked to produce the innovations, but because these innovations had come best from the scientists themselves. And this notion of scientific self-certification, self-government, is developed during the Second World War and ever since. So the First World War becomes the potting shed, the nursery for these developments that were to last into our time.
0: That was Professor Roy MacLeod on the role of scientists. You have been listening to the British Home Front in the First World War. The podcast series was made possible thanks to the generosity of John Cawthorne and the 1926 Foundation. The conference was supported by the Department for Digital, Culture, Media and Sport and the Scottish Government. It was a chrome radio production for the University of St Andrews with music by the pipes and drums of the Royal Scots Dragoon Guards. The producer was Katrina Oliphant with sound design by Chris Sharp. The series editor was Professor Sir Hugh Strawn. Do join us for our next set of podcasts when we look at trade unions and the rise of the Labour Party, conscription, charitable work, refugees, internees and prisoners of war.